How many of you were here last week? If you weren't here last week, those of you who weren't here, please see if you can get the message from last week. God really spoke to us. I believe it was a prophetic and an apostolic word that just went into the church, and it's something that is set up. So I want to continue on it. So I'm going to be talking this morning about power for your life, and it's going to be part two. So last week, I just reviewed with you how God spoke to me through a movie called The Mule. The main actor was Clint Eastwood. He wrote it. He directed it. And um, incidentally, when he turned 90, a television interviewer said to him, well, now, Clint Eastwood, you're 90. What are you going to do with your life? He says, I'm going to write another movie. I'm going to produce another movie. There's something in Clint Eastwood that refuses to just sit back and do nothing. And so Toby Keith wrote a song for that movie, and it's called Don't Let the Old Man In. I wept when I heard the title song. I wept because God spoke to me, and God said to me, don't ever allow the old man in. Now, we know Paul talks about the fact that our old man was crucified with Christ. Isn't that right? So in other words, there were three principal people that were crucified, or even four you could talk about on the cross of Jesus. Jesus was crucified there. Your old self was crucified there. The law was crucified there. And then Jesus triumphed over the enemy there on the cross. Is that okay? And so we died with him in Christ. So Paul says, so don't let the old man come back and uh, do things with you because he was put to death. So reckon your old self, reckon yourself dead to sin, but alive to Christ. And of course, because last week Sunday was Resurrection Sunday, I spoke about the resurrection life that is inside of us. Now, I want to just talk this morning and share things that I need to go fairly quickly, but I spoke last week where Jesus said, I have power to lay down my life. I have power to take up my life again. No one takes my life from me. And one of the things that you will notice about Jesus is that he had clear boundaries in his life. In other words, no one forced him to the cross, not even the devil. Not adulation, not pressure, not popularity, not fame could take him to the cross. But that was his destiny. Is that okay? So he went to the cross at the right time. The devil couldn't push him earlier. Neither could the devil get him to short circuit to achieve the kingdoms of the earth because the goal of Jesus was to achieve the kingdoms of the earth, to be his kingdoms. And remember, the devil came to him on the Mount of Temptation and said, if you bow down to me, I will give you all the nations. And Jesus said, first thing is I'll be breaking a principle. You worship God and him only. And secondly, incidentally, reading between the lines in italics, I'm going to get the kingdoms anyway, but I'm going to do it God's way. So how many times do we short circuit God's purpose for our lives or God's promised blessing on our lives, and we break a principle in order to get it because we want to gratify our flesh because we want to get it sooner rather than later, and we'll compromise the principle of God's Word. Amen. So we break a principle, so we can't be patient and do it God's way, and so, you know, Jesus didn't do that. Is that okay? And so he said, I have power to lay it down. So I lay it down when it's the right time. So he did. But then he says, I have power to take up my life again. The greatest miracle of Easter is not that Jesus rose from the dead, but is that Jesus raised himself from the dead. How that works is absolutely miraculous. But then I use it as a parable of the fact that we can take up our lives again if somehow our lives, our destiny has been subverted or we have been distracted 
or it's come to ruin. We have the power of Christ resident in us to pick up our lives and to fulfill our destiny. Is that okay? Or if we haven't had destiny or don't have a vision, we have the power to pick it up and go for vision. Everybody said Amen. So that's last week reviewed. But I want to just talk a little bit more about what the Apostle Paul shares with us. Andre was just sharing with me at the prayer meeting yesterday morning, and he said, you know that thing about don't let the old man in? He said, you know, my dad is 83. My dad is 83 years old, but let me just show you. Showed me a picture. Um, Hannes has got a vision now. This is his next project. He wants to make solar panels that are cheap and affordable so that the poor people can have hot water, for example. So he's busy with the project, and Andre showed me the project. He's 83 years old. I mean, he's earned the right to put his feet up, kick back, and say, well, let the youngsters do it. In the process, he will have just opened the door and let the old man in. And so he's got vision. I believe the thing that we need to have right till the very end is we need to have a vision to do something. The moment you lose vision, you will lose purpose in life. It's very easy then to lose hope. And when you lose hope, it's the last thing to go. And when you have no hope, you've got nothing to live for, you might as well just die. It's a program in England that we used to love. It was very funny. And it was about an old age home with all these old bullies and old dollies there. And the program was called Waiting for God. It was very funny, but now that title is very sad. Because the entire existence is just sitting around waiting for God to come and fetch them. So all the mischief and nonsense they get up to. Listen, I'm not waiting for God. There is no ways. I'm not waiting for Him to do anything. Because everything He was to do, He's already done for me in Christ. Is that okay? And so come on, church. I want to just talk about a few things. And there's something about destiny. Destiny is all about a prepared vessel. Now, I'm going to say that again because I want you to get it. Everything about your destiny is about a prepared vessel. Not just a vessel. Destiny has got everything to do with a life that has been prepared for that moment. Symbol, Bible, Esther. She went through all the selection of the king. She went through all the ritual washings, all the preparations, all the separations, all the beautification. And when she was prepared... Then was she able to step in and go and touch the scepter of the king and fulfill her destiny. A prepared vessel can fulfill destiny. Come on, everybody say it with me. A prepared vessel. A vessel prepared. And that's why, you know, because of Daniel, because of his commitment, because of his convictions, because of his righteousness, was able to stand up and to speak to the greatest and most powerful ruler of the world at that time, Nebuchadnezzar, and then later Belshazzar, and then later Cyrus, and then later Darius. Those were successive kingdoms. And he was able to speak to those emperors because he was a prepared vessel. And listen, everything that is happening to you, everything that you go through, every painful thing, every joyful thing, every happy thing, every sad thing is part of the process of preparation, the preparation of the vessel. Like last week, I'm saying, listen, don't think this is a good message for so-and-so. Think this is a good message for me. So listen to a few verses, and I'm going to fly through them very quickly. Colossians chapter 1, verses 19 to 14. I think it's the NOV. For this reason, since the day we heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you. This is Paul. 
we continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of His will through all the wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives, so that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and please Him in every way. So listen, every spiritual revelation has got a practical outworking. Revelation is not revelation until you're living it. Going to say that again. Revelation is not revelation until you're living it. Because a revelation is a realization that translates into a lifestyle. You can have the most glorious vision of the love of God, but until you are living the love of God, it's just an idea. It's not a revelation. So he says, so that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and please Him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to His glorious might, so that you may have great endurance and patience. So Paul, one of the things that he prays is not only the realization or the understanding, but he prays that God would strengthen you on the inside with all power so that you can endure every opposition to your life becoming fruitful and pleasing to Him. Amen. So he says, And giving joyful thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of His holy people in the kingdom of light. For He has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son He loves, in whom we have redemption, which is the forgiveness of sins. Now listen how close His same prayer is for the Ephesian Christians. Chapter 1, verse 17 to 20. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know Him better. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which He's called you, the riches of His glorious inheritance, which is in the saints. It's already in you, church. Say, it's in me. And He's incomparably great power in us. Say, it's in me. He's incomparably great powers in me. Say it. Say, it's in me. That power is the same as the mighty strength He exerted when He raised Christ from the dead. Because that's exactly what He did for us. Paul tells us in Ephesians 2, when we were dead in our transgressions and sin, He raised us up. How? By the influence and the working of that same mighty strength, that same might, that same power, different translations that was in us, He resurrected us from death in sin, brought us into salvation, raised us up, co-joined with Jesus, co-seated, co-ruling, co-reigning with Christ in power. Come on, church. Now listen to me. All of that. Let me go on to Ephesians 3. Paul says this in Ephesians 3, I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through the Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith. Is that good? So how many of you have got Jesus inside of you? How did he come to live inside of you when you put your faith in him? Is that okay? And he says, now I'm praying that Christ might fully, I'm putting the descriptions in, that Christ may fully dwell in you exhibiting his life. That's why I'm praying that God would strengthen you in your inner man so that you can live the life. Is that okay? It becomes a personality trait. My personality trait is the personality of Jesus. And then he says, through faith, and I pray that you being rooted and established in love may have power together 
with all the Lord's holy people, the saints, to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and to know this love that surpasses knowledge. Now listen to this. That you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Woo! Why? How? By the resident power of God inside of you that Christ can dwell in you through the revelation knowledge that the Spirit gives. So the end of all revelation is that you are more like Jesus, that you've got His personality. Come on, somebody say amen. amen. Now listen to what Paul says. This is incredible. Now to him that is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to His power that is at work within us, to Him be glory in the church. Amen. Church, can I just say something? The greater the measure, the greater the manifest measure of the power of God in you, the greater the answers to your prayers. I'm going to say it again. God is able to do immeasurably more than all you can ask or think or imagine according to, in direct measure with, the manifestation of the power that is already working inside of you. Can I just say this? Please, can I say it? Maybe this might be one or two here if the shoe fits wear it. I don't know. But, um, so let me just say this. You cannot be a fleshly, carnal believer not walking the principles of God, quoting that verse, hoping that he does immeasurably more than all you ask, think, or imagine. It's not going to happen. It's according to the power that is already at work within you. That is already at work. Come on, church. That is already at work within you. Now, if that feels like condemnation, it is not. It may feel like the Holy Spirit convincing and persuading you by comparing truth with where you're at now, truth and non-truth, and say, well, if you come over to this, you can experience it. Is that okay? Sometimes we need to say it like it is. Is that right? And so it's according to the power that is at work with it, to Him be glory in the church and in Christ forever and ever and ever. Okay. I just want to just very quickly, in one verse, just maybe try and sum it up. So in other words, if you want God to do immeasurably more than all you ask, think, or imagine, get in line with God. Do things God's way. Don't try and do your will in God's name or in the name of Jesus. Don't come up with your plans and then ask Jesus to bless it. No, live His way. Live the right life. Then, <laughs> according to the power that is at work within you, then, then he will say, just ask, think, imagine, if it's yours. Amen? So Paul says in Galatians 5.22, but the fruit of the Spirit, the manifestation of the Christ life in you, the manifestation of the might, the manifestation of the power I'm using all the words that I've used up until now. The manifestation of this great revelation that you've had is love and joy, called the fruit of the Spirit, and peace and kindness, uh, patience, uh, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, 
And he goes on in verse 23 to say, gentleness and self-control. Against such things there is no law. I want you to notice in these two first verses, Paul talks about the manifestation of the power of the Spirit in us, the manifestation of the power of the resurrection life in us. Same terminology. We can change terminologies. The manifestation of the might of God in us. His descriptions starts with the word love and ends with the word self-control. So I'm going to drop the self off for now just for the sake of explanation. It begins with love and it ends with control. So Paul clarifies what kind of control that is, but that is the power of control over yourself. In other words, if you have no control over yourself, you will not manifest the love of God. I'm going to say that again. If you don't have control over yourself, if you don't walk in that power that is within, you won't walk in love, which is the personality of Jesus. So Paul says, he qualifies it. He says it is a power, it's a control over yourself. Now, this is a big subject. This is a big subject. Because people with issues, and people with pain, and people that have been under whatever the influence of others, very often their knee-jerk reaction is to try and then control others. The very thing that's happened to them, they will try to do to others to self-protect. You can't control things around you. You have got very little say over other people and circumstances, but you've got 100% say over yourself. You've got 100% control over what you think and what attitude you adopt and what reaction you take. 100% control. It's the power that was within you. So this power, Clint Eastwood described as when you don't operate with this power, Clint Eastwood describes it as you're allowing the old man in. Is that okay? So don't let the old man in. Don't let him come and compromise the power for your life that you have. Just quickly, let me just mention, Paul says this in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 5. Let's just talk about the mind of Christ, the mind of Christ. Paul tells us we demolish arguments. Everybody say, I demolish arguments. And every pretension, say, I demolish pretensions. Okay, I want you to know, you need to keep quoting it, but I'm setting you up. And I know some of you have figured that out already. Every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God, and he says, and we take captive, say, I take captive. Every thought, and make it subject or obedient to Christ. Now, I used to try that, you know, earlier days before I understood what that verse was. When I began to understand what that verse was, I started to have more success. But all of this, the spiritual warfare, the demon chasers, <laughs> hey, they love this spiritual warfare verse, this one. Hey, we bind the devil and we've got, you know, weapons that are mighty through God to the demolishing of strongholds. We take captive every thought. You know, they're binding all the thinking of the 
Satan worshippers and all this kind of thing. It, it doesn't seem to have worked. Let's be honest. But Paul is not talking about that. Paul is talking about the disobedience of the Corinthians. And he's talking about the fact that we have got power. We have got, you have, I have got power. I have weapons which are not carnal. They are mighty through God. So, come on, everybody. To demolish arguments in my mind. I mean, have you ever noticed the argument that ensues in your mind when somebody's done something wrong and then the Lord tells you to go and forgive them? Have you ever noticed the argument, the narrative, the justification that goes on in your mind? Have you ever, not you, it doesn't happen in this church, okay? And what about the pretensions that go on in our own minds? Come on, church. I find that often that we as Christians are the most dishonest people. But we are so dishonest with ourselves about ourselves. Aren't those pretensions? I mean, we make out very often that we're better than what we are. And I, I know all the Bible truths. I would rather be preaching those others about who you are in Christ. I would rather be preaching that. But sometimes, sometimes we've got to put the portrait of Christ down and pick up the mirror and have a good look. And then very quickly go back to the portrait. Otherwise we get too discouraged. What about the pretensions? Paul tells us we've got divine power to demolish arguments and pretensions that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. Hey, hey, because God really knows us, does he not? Is that okay? And sometimes when the Holy Spirit comes and he starts to reflect the mirror, arguments and pretensions start, you know? I remember when, it's a very funny story, when Louis first started and companies started to put in the cameras in the vehicles, in the transport companies, and uh, it's not continual monitoring, but the cameras are activated to record when there's bad driving. It picks up the gravitational forces of the truck. And so anyway, this one driver, notorious for bad driving, of course, when the camera was activated, the video clip comes to the logistics manager, and he's called in for a hearing, and they're saying, you know, this is what you're doing, and it potentially is an accident. You know, it's for driver training. It's not just for penalizing, but it's for training. But the best way to train is to show you your behavior. This is what you like. And so he sat down and watched the video clip, very clear, very high resolution, and they said, but there you are driving. And he says, no, it wasn't me. I, that's not me. It's someone that looks like me. You know, the patron saint of people like that is John the Baptist. When he said to the Pharisees, I'm not the one. He's the one. You see, there's a, there's a level of dishonesty even amongst ourselves because sometimes we know that what we're doing is wrong, but we will kid ourselves even with the truth of good positive scriptures like there is therefore now no condemnation 
to validate our pretensions. But Paul says we've got divine power to demolish strongholds, to demolish pretensions, to demolish self-denial or self-justification, which sets itself up against the pure, convicting work of the Holy Spirit when he's pointing something out. Come on, church. The Holy Spirit doesn't so much convict as convince. But the way that he convinces us is that he shows us what the truth is and he illuminates to us where we are so that we can synchronize ourselves to the truth. And it's a simple matter of obedience, and that's why Paul says we can take it all and bring it into obedience to Christ. Is that okay, church? So listen, so what about the mind of Christ? What about taking thoughts and making them subject to Christ? Well, I used to go, you know, when I was blowing it and I knew I was blowing it, I would suddenly think, I've got to make them subject to Christ. So I would imagine Jesus on the cross dying, and then I was going to take this stuff and put it underneath Christ, you know, my angry thoughts or something like this, and I would put it at the cross, and then, you know, that's how I was making I was putting it on his feet, and I'm making it subject to So I would paint this vivid visual picture, and uh, it didn't work. It wasn't helping. And I couldn't understand But it was when I began to understand that who I am in Christ, when I began to understand the power that I have as a son of God, when I began to understand that what he did on the cross and through the impartation of the Spirit inside of me was that I had the power to take that and subject it underneath my own self and to live the Christ life. I had authority over it. Now, there's a simple mechanism which I'm going to give you at the end. Is that all right? But before we get there, I just want to just cover a few things. And so, the mind of Christ, the mind of Christ, the mind of Christ, the mind of Christ, we have the mind of Christ. In other words, I don't have to think angry thoughts, I can think Christ thoughts. And it's not that I'm thinking about Jesus, I'm thinking about who I am in Christ. That I don't have a spirit of anger. That I have authority over anger. I don't need to be angry. Is that okay? I don't need to be irritated. I don't need to still be suffering from the hurts of the past. I have got power over it. Because of the truth of who Christ has made me to be. Come on, church. And so, you know, the husband's bad moods. And his angry outbursts. Let's just call that for what it is. That's control. It's nothing short. Angry outbursts. Moodiness. is nothing short of control issues. The silent treatment is control issues. The always crying and the tears. Doing the self-pity thing. It's a control mechanism. Should I continue? Those are control issues. Come on. You always do this to me. <laughs> control, control. Just see the red light going. <laughs> control issues. Yeah. When the husband gets home and he walks in, back in a foul mood. What's that? He's had a bad day. He doesn't have the guts to take it out on people at work and put people in their place. So he's got to come home to a place of safety and security and take it out on his family to be the big deal. 
Now there's an amen. Now. Now there's an amen. Okay, let's go back to the crying and the moodiness. Let's revisit that one. Let's revisit the tongue for tea. What's for dinner, darling? Cold shoulder and tongue. What are those things? Come on, let's be honest. Come on, let's demolish pretensions. Those are control mechanisms. I mean, it's such a horrible day, I'm going to punish you all. <laughs> You're going to have a horrible day with me. <laughs> Miserable so-and-so. Moving slowly along. What about the boss's correction or his criticism? Or your, one of your managers? And it might not necessarily be negative. You might well deserve it. How do you wear it? The mind of Christ. So we don't do any of those things, do we, church? Because we have the mind of Christ. Isn't that right? You know, sometimes it's really obvious when you've let the old man in. Sometimes it's very obvious when you've lost control or connection with the power that is resonant. It's very obvious when you really blow it, when you really lose it. But how many of you know if you cop an attitude, it's very difficult to correct? Because you can very quickly deny it and pull your face straight. That's why attitudes work. Why are you cross with me, darling? I'm not. No, really, what's wrong? Nothing. Really, are you sure? Yes. So if there's something wrong, would you tell me? Yep. I mean, I've had members of this church do this for me for four months. <laughs> Remember I said... This is not a good message for the person sitting next to you. It's a good message for who? Me. You. Exactly. So when you blow it in an action, there's something tangible that can be pointed to. And you're confronted with the action. But if you cop an attitude, there's nothing visible or nothing tangible. And you can quickly pull it right. But we still need to have the power in ourselves to change our own attitudes. And then later we'll just mention it quickly about helping others out. Okay, come on church. Very quickly. Ten ways, or ten, yeah, ten ways in which you may be opening the door for the old man. And in so doing, losing connection with that resident power and derailing the development of the vessel towards its destiny. I'm going to just say that again. It's important for you to hear this. Ten possible ways in which you lose connection with the power that's resident in you by opening the door to the old man, thus affecting the development of this vessel, which God is working hard at doing to prepare you for your destiny. Church, I'm walking around with this vision in my head. I've already, Jonathan's done some work on it. The day when the book that I'm writing is printed, published, and it's out, and I stand here very proudly, and I show you the book. It's a very clear vision in my head 
But I want to tell you, I couldn't have done it five years ago. Ten years ago, I couldn't have done it. 35 years ago, when I, 36 years ago now, when I started in the ministry, I couldn't have done it. I needed to be a prepared vessel for this moment. At any time, if I continuously allowed the old man in, I could not be a prepared vessel, could not be qualified to write what I'm writing now. Come on, church. There's a call upon you. There's a call upon all of our lives to the full measure of Christ, to develop Christ. Don't keep opening the door to the old man. Shut the door. Was that okay? When the old man comes, in the words of Helen Cannon, she's probably watching, don't let the doorknob slap your bum on the way out. Get him out and shut the door. Number one, guilt. It's amazing to me how many Christians are guilt-ridden, guilty, always giving into guilt, past lives, past guilt. Some time ago, Louis Swart, he got the message, the understanding of we are the righteousness of God through faith in Christ. And he said, one night, he said, it was not a dream, John. He said, it was a vision. In this vision, I came into this room, and there was a, a bunch of men standing around. And the context was, in his explanation, was that we were all there because we wanted to really grow in the Lord, and we wanted to know Jesus better. And suddenly, he said, I turned around to look around and see who else was in the room, and Jesus was standing at my shoulder just behind me. And Jesus looked around the room, and he said, listen, I'm putting these words in. If you really want to get places with me, then you need to all confess your sins. He said, immediately, every single man in the room grabbed a pad. He says, he remembered in the vision, it was like the yellow pads that very often you see the Americans using. So this is in particular for the Americans. No, I'm, I'm just, it was just familiar picture language for him. And they f sat down and they furiously began to write out their sins. Because Jesus said, if you want to get places with me, you need to record and write down all your sins. And they grabbed a pad. And he said, this, the interesting thing in the dream was they all had pads available. In other words, they were people who were associated with guilt. He said, and he was a little bit stunned because they sat down and they're writing furiously all their sins out. They just write reams and reams. And he hasn't got a pad. He didn't bring a pad. Even went into the next room looking for a pad. And then a thought struck him, and he goes back into the room, and he walks up to Jesus, and he said, but Jesus, I thought all our sins were forgiven and that you've made us your righteousness. Yeah. And Jesus looked at him and said, you're right, my son. Yeah. And he said, and together they turned, and they looked around at all these men furiously writing all these things down. He said, and he and Jesus began to weep because he was conscious that Jesus was weeping over the sin-guilt consciousness yeah. rather than the effective work that he's done in making them his righteousness. The apostle Paul was able to deal with guilt, a murderer of the church. And he says in one of the epistles, my conscience is clear. Listen. Listen. Whatever failures, whatever sins, 
that we have in the past, if we understand the cross of Jesus, He has made us to be His righteousness, and He has cleared that away. And that's the difference between the sacrifice of Jesus and the sacrifices of bulls and goats and heifers of the Old Testament. They were not able to cleanse the conscience of the worshiper. But Lord Jesus, His blood has cleansed our consciences. Is that okay? It doesn't mean we don't have a conscience concerning sin. Because if we sin presently, we have a conscience educated by the Holy Spirit to say to us, this what you're doing right now is out of line with the truth. And the option is there immediately to change, to receive the forgiveness, and to continue in that righteous state and have your conscience cleared. Is everybody with me? And so one way we open the door and we lose power is if we are still walking in a guilt of the past. And it might have even been your fault, the failure, the divorce, the what it might have even been your fault. But there is forgiveness. Come on, church. Somewhere there has to be forgiveness so that the sins of the past don't rob us of the power for the future. Number two. It's really incredible that people with very tender guilt consciences are easily taken advantage of and can be manipulated by guilt. You might have heard of this familiar statement. might have even heard in your home. Yeah, but you always do this. Maybe you were the one that said it to your husband or to your wife. What are you inferring? You're reminding them of past things and you're invoking guilt. Okay, let's move on. Let's move on. Let's move on. There's the whole issue of, given everything Jesus has done for us, we as Christians should be the only group of people on earth who don't battle with low self-esteem. Given what Jesus has done for us, the great price that he paid we should be the group of people on the face of the planet who are not struggling with low self-esteem, yeah. that I'm not worth it. When he died for you. Yeah. And if you were the only person on earth, he would have died for you. Yeah. Can I have an amen? amen. Low self-worth. And very often what happens when we let the old man in, it's because we're trying to draw our sense of self-esteem from other people. As if it doesn't matter what Jesus has said about us. Does he not count when he says, you're the apple of my eye? Does it not count when he tells you, I've loved you with an eternal, everlasting love? And yet, we still find ourselves losing power and letting the old man in when everything we're trying to do is we're trying to get the affirmations of people around us. You know, the danger with that, and you know, every one of these is a message in itself, so I can only bullet them, is that we then start becoming servants of men instead of servants of God. Because then we give in to fear, and the fear is, I don't want that person's opinion to change of me, so I will not be a bold Christian. I will not be an obvious believer. I will not share the gospel with them, because I don't want their opinions of me to change. Because let's face it, if you've got a rabid unbeliever and you share the gospel with them, their opinion of you changes. Yeah. 
I was chatting with another pastor there that I bumped into him, and we were talking, and I was telling him about the, we were sharing with each other. When there was a, like a, it was a wild place down here where the Checker Center, those days there was a pub and dance hall and, and things like this in it. <laughs> it was Sodom and Gomorrah, you know. I walked in the one day because I heard some of our young people were going there, and that, that night they had topless dancers, you know. So I went in. I just avoided certain places, you know. And a few of my youth members, fortunately I didn't see them, but they were all diving under the table with their drinks while this girl was jangling them on the stage, you know. And, uh, but I went in and I confronted the owner of the restaurant. I said, you better, I said, before God, you better check IDs at the door. I said, because I heard some young people that come to our youth group, you know, they weren't really that committed, but that wasn't the issue. I was hot under the collar. I said, check the IDs at the door before you let them in here. And uh, so one of them was really honest and often said, Pastor John, I got the fright of my life. <laughs> you were the last person I expected to walk, <laughs> walk in there. And I sat in the guy's office. The girl had finished. And uh, I sat in the office there and I said, I apologized to her. And I said, look, this is not about you. You do what you do. And then I spoke to him, you know. And... Um, it, it was amazing. I think it was his son burnt the place down a month later. So it got the judgment he deserved. I was thanking God for it. But listen, you can't stop evil. But, but the point that I'm trying to make is this, is that if you're going to be a bold witness, you need to sort out your own esteem issues. I would go on Friday nights, and uh, it changed, you know, they stopped the topless dancing, but, you know, they were, it was still wild. I'd go in, I'd go up to the bar, I'd order a Coke, and I'd stand at the bar, and then I'd look at for someone to talk to. People would come up, and they would talk to me, and they would say, yeah, what do you do? Because I'd say, what do you do? And then I'd start talking. they said, say, what do you do? And I'd say, I'm not telling you, because if I tell you, you won't talk to me. Oh, are you a drug dealer? Do you sell drugs? No. No. And they would carry on. I'd say, I'm not, I'm not going to tell you because the moment I tell you, you'll stop talking to me. No, I promise you won't. I'm a pastor. <laughs> I would, whoa, 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 whoa. You promised me. Come back, come back, come back. You promised me. Let's talk. Why does that change anything? Well, the first thing I want to know, what's in there? Neat Coke, you can taste it. So what are you doing here? I came here to talk to you. And then I would visit with them at the pub. I was a killjoy. <laughs> Amen. Come on, church. Your self-worth. How much of what you do is because you are so desperate to get people's opinions of you, you know, popular and liked. A lot of my early years in the ministry, I would compromise on the vision of God because of people's opinions. They would get offended anyway. So I realized I would rather than offend them by me doing what God tells me to do. Andre was just sharing yesterday morning. He was doing some training. I assumed it was like a sales training. And when the guy was teaching them, he said, there's only one thing that can stop your absolute success. 
There's only one person that can get in the way and hinder your success in this thing. And he would elaborate on it. And he says, and if you want to know who that person is, just go and have a look in the mirror. The only person. No devil. No, no corrupt government can hinder you. I was watching, you know, every now and then on ENCA, I like to keep abreast of what's happening on the news. I'm just to see how much lies they're telling. <laughs> I'm going to throw it in now. There's some lies coming out about some farmers in Buckerstrom. Watch the lies. Once you've seen the lies on TV, I'll tell you the truth, what the actual incident was. It's politicized, and it's wicked. So the Devi show comes up, and I quite like Devi. You know, when she confronts these crooks, thinks she's awesome. It's a cheeky little lady. It's fantastic. But there was a, a guy that came on, and he's making it big. He's singing. He's becoming a major big hit as a country artist in America, but he's local, South African. Powerful singer. His album is You Are Whiskey to My Soul. And he's got a whole lot of country songs. He's got a voice like, it's like unbelievable voice. His name is Rowan Ash. And the first season of The Voice, S.A., he went to the blind auditions and not one of the judges turned for him. Mm. And when she interviewed him, she said, what did that feel like? She said, it didn't matter anything to me because I know who I am and I know where I'm going. Yeah. The next morning, an Afrikaans label, country label, phoned him. And they said, this is the first time we've ever done this, but we want you on our label. And they took on an Engelsman. And then when they gave him the recording contract, and he did it. It became heard in America as well, and now he's a big name, Rowan Ash. But he didn't take rejection. He didn't open the door to the old man. Come on, church. All right. So rejection, why do we, you know, we become people pleasers or whatever. And so that self-worth thing is something that we need to move away from. And then go and look in the mirror. Have a good look in the mirror and say, you're the person that's going to get me to my destiny. Can I say something? As we come to a close, and then I'm going to fly through the remainder. Is that very often as Christians, this is what we like. We're praying, we're even fasting. We may even be reading a Bible and uh, coming to church. You know, but basically, we're handing responsibility over to Jesus to get us to our destiny. The responsibility to get to the full measure of Christ and to get where God has called you to be is 100% yours. I'm going to say it again. Don't waste time praying, Jesus, help me to get to my destiny. You get to your destiny. Can I give you one verse? So Paul talks about this great salvation that is ours, and then in Philippians 2.13, he says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. God has worked it in. The power is within. He's given you the Word. He's given you the Spirit. You have all the tools. Now work out your destiny. 
Let me tell you, maintain healthy boundaries. Financially, emotionally, physically, maintain godly boundaries. Don't let the old man in. Don't let the old man in. Can you believe it? People with power never complain about all the things that they have to do. Grumbling is the seedbed for discontentment and resentment. A favorite door for the old man is grumbling and complaining. Don't be a moaner. Don't be a whinger. Don't be a whiner. Jesus made you a prophesier. Amen. Servants cry, sons prophesy. Come on, church. Grumbling is a negative form of prayer. Grumbling is the seedbed for discontentment and resentment. Grumbling as a mode of prayer is heard by God. Ask the Israelites. Paul says in Philippians 2, 13 to 16, for it is God, no, I've said that already, but listen to it in its context. For it is God who works in you to will and to do according to, in order to fulfill his good purpose in you. So do everything without grumbling or complaining or arguing so that you may become blameless and pure. Children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation, then you will shine like stars in the universe, in the sky. Amen? As you hold to the word of life. A recent study, I did some homework, okay? A recent study in the European Journal of Work and Organizational Psychology found and came to the conclusion, the idiots, it's been in the Bible for so many years, came to the conclusion that grumbling, venting, and complaining at work actually increases your negative experiences and the impact of those negative experiences. I tell you, sometimes the Christians are the most discontent, dissatisfied, unhappy, grumbling complainers on the face of the planet. Jesus, it shouldn't be among us. Holding on to unforgiveness. Oh, my word. Woo! You hold on to unforgiveness. You've got double-door French doors to let the old man in. You know? I mean, you can drive a bus through there of unforgiveness. Oh, my word. Resentments and grudges and la 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 Somebody hurt you 27 years ago. Well, then why are you still letting them hurt you 27 years later? Get it over with. Sort it out. Forgive them. Move on. Yes, but. Just as God in Christ forgave you. (laughs) Yeah. Toxic attitudes drain your power. Amen? Yes, you can't hold on to anger for the the past. A number of churches when I was itinerating. Words of knowledge, 21 years, 24 years, 27 years. Brothers and sisters haven't spoken to each other. Can't just pick up the phone. Be the Christian. Be the bigger person. Forgive. Ask for forgiveness. You don't have to be wrong to ask for forgiveness. Get reconciliation. You know, one thing I've learned as a pastor and as the pastor of this church Some people are too immature. They don't know how to say sorry. They don't know how to repent. So I have to help them. By going and saying, look, are you okay? Is everything all right between us? 
when I haven't done anything wrong, and I do do things wrong, there are times that I will say sorry. But what I'm doing is I'm just trying to help them for their sake, for their blessing's sake. Just I'm trying to facilitate it, make it easy for them to be reconciled. So sometimes, as the bigger one, so sometimes as the Christian, sometimes as the one that's got the power and wanting to move on with God, you help people. Just go and say, hey, you know, I'm sorry that there's issues. Can we, can we not sort it out? Let's talk. Have I done it? Plenty. Have I apologized for being wrong? Yeah. I mean, plenty. <laughs> plenty. Holding on to unforgiveness. Fear of rejection. Sherbet. Because of that pain, we carry around with us a fear of rejection. Can I say something? I'm going to say it anyway, Bev says. The fear of rejection is a magnet for rejection. You are so magnetized. You're so magnetized for rejection, you will behave in a way that causes you to be rejected, to justify your feelings about yourself. So you are on a path of self-destruction. The moment you start forgiving, the moment you start dealing with things, the moment you get over the rejection thing and you accept who Christ has accepted and love the one who Christ has loved and get healed of that thing, you will stop being a magnet for rejection. I mean, it's unfair to expect people to love you more than you love yourself. You're like it's quiet now. Let me put my head down and go on. The door of self-justification. It's an ugly thing. And then the, don't blow it, door. Isn't it amazing how often we blow it by allowing other people to bring out the worst in us? I don't know what it is, but that person always brings out the worst in me. No, 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 no. There's something in that person that is familiar to you and you reacting to a mirror image and then you're blowing it. Pastor John, one scripture. Okay, you ask for it, Jacob and Laban. Manipulator meets manipulator and is out-manipulated in his manipulations but it causes him to have an encounter with God and realize what a manipulator is. And God changes his character and verifies it by his name change and calls him Israel instead of Jacob. Come on, the person that is irritating you the most is a mirror image of you. God is using that person to show you what you are like. I think we can stop there now. It's been a little bit painful, hasn't it? Hasn't it? But how to get your power back? Let's get our power back. If you can, and Bev's discovered this, and phenomenal growth in Bev in so many areas. And um, we were talking about it recently, and her conclusions have different ways of describing it, the process to mine, but... So I'm using some of Bev's this morning, some of Bev's descriptions of how do you tap into that power? 
How, because that's the key then, isn't it? Because you, you can feel, I, I'm going to blow it, I'm going to blow it. Here comes the stimulus. I'm going to, it's not going to be pretty. <laughs> and you can feel it coming. And you can practice it and develop it. If you can give yourself a mirror moment, so write it down, mirror moment. Give yourself a mirror moment, like I mentioned a bit earlier. A mirror moment is to remind yourself the only one that can blow it is this guy in the mirror. Is that okay? Who's really in charge here? It's this guy in the mirror here. It's taking this thing subject to Christ and saying, this person that I'm looking at in the mirror is Christ. He has got all authority in heaven and earth. This is a Jesus person standing right there that I'm looking at. He's got the power to do this. You need to give yourself a mirror moment to commit to rather be the driver than the passenger in your life. Making a conscious effort, I'm going to, I have the control and I'm keeping it. I have the control over my life. I can't control what's happening here. So give yourself a mirror moment. Then, second thing, give yourself a neutral moment. If you're able, teach yourself to almost disengage while this thing is playing out and you're one of the role players, to disengage and to step back and to observe yourself. Not the other person, observe yourself. And if you can, in that mirror moment, ask yourself, number one, why am I reacting like this? Because it's about you. It's all about you. It's not about the circumstance. It's not about the situation. It's not about the person. Because you're the Christian. Even if it is another Christian, God is looking at them. Rather let them blow it. Let them sort out and work out their own salvation. But as far as this moment, you work out your salvation. Now, this requires honesty. Don't be a professional Christian liar. It requires an honesty with yourself about yourself and go, why am I, I, reacting like this? Because the normal old man question would be, why is this person doing this to me? Don't they know? Why am I reacting like this? Come on, this is self-control. Why am I reacting like this? Be brutally honest. Is it because I'm threatened? Is it because I'm insecure? Is it because I'm fearful? What is it? And what is causing these feelings? Second question. Why am I reacting like this? What is causing these feelings? What's causing this? Because there's an underlying thing. Come on, church. This is nuts and bolts Christianity now, eh? This is practical theology. Is it because I feel vulnerable? Do I feel pushed away? What, what is causing this? Does it have roots somewhere? Is it connected to incidents in the past? It virtually will always, because it's a history. That's why they say fear. What is fear really? Fear is actually not about the future, because everything that's happened to you has happened in the past. So your fears are actually come from the past. Because you fear a repetition of rejection. 
You fear repetition of being out of control and abused. You fear repetition of something. So you have this abnormal fear of the future, but actually everything bad that's happened to you has happened in the past. It's not going to be repeated in the future unless you carry on in that fear. <laughs> What's causing these feelings? So you've had a mirror moment. You reminded yourself who's in charge and just say, okay, just chill. Then you go into a neutral moment and you observe and go, but why? Normally in the process, you will be able to disarm the process within a short period of time. But the question that we're asking now is, what is the truth about this situation? What is the truth? Because this person has a point. This situation, you know, if God looks at this with his knowledge, how does he see the situation? Because we'll always, you know, it's like, kind of like this. When someone offends you. When you're laying in bed at night, you climb the stage. And you relive the drama of the day and of that moment. The light is shining on you. You're the lone actor in the drama. You're the director. You write the script. You play the music. It sounds like a violin. You play the whole drama out. You reenact it. Well, of course, the other person is an incidentary role player, but they, they, they are the, you're the victim. Because you were so wronged. And don't they really know, you know, that if only they knew who, how really you were. And then you play this whole drama out as the victim. You might even change the, you know, and just have someone on the piano and then this is what I'm going to do to them, and then and how dare they? And but you've written the whole script, the whole. I mean, you're the role player. You're playing out this whole offense, and they're only I should have given them a piece of my mind next time, but I'll never talk to them again. Yeah. <laughs> what, is this, what is the truth about the situation? And then second, th or thirdly, where will my reaction get me? In reality, where will it get me? And then you could even put in the fifth one, what would be a, the reaction of Jesus? the Christ. And then last of all, the person involved, and if there were other observers, what would they be learning about my behavior that I don't know? So the Apostle Paul says, just concerning one aspect, he says, let no unwholesome talk come out of your mouth, but only what is beneficial for building others up, that those who listening may also be edified. So your attitude, your actions should benefit the person that you're with, enable them to change by you changing, disarm the whole situation. If these observers, they've just learned how Christ reacts in situations. And you've grown. And you've grown. And so I close. 
Romans 8, 9 to 14. But you're not in the flesh, but you're in the Spirit. If so be that the Spirit of God dwells in you. Now, if any man have the Spirit of Christ, you have not the Spirit of Christ, he's none of his. But if Christ be in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the Spirit is alive and is life because of righteousness. But if the Spirit of him that raised up Christ from the dead dwell in you, he that raised up Christ from the dead shall also quicken your mortal bodies by his Spirit that dwelleth in you. Therefore, brethren, we are not debtors to the flesh, to the old man, to open the door to him, to live his ways, to live after the flesh. For if ye live after the flesh, ye shall die. Yes. But if through the Spirit you do mortify the deeds of the body or the flesh or the old man, ye shall really, really live and be a vessel prepared, my words, and be the ones that reach your destiny. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. Amen. Let's pray. Bow our heads. I don't often preach like this. This is unusual preaching for me. It's not that I can't preach like this. I can preach and teach like this. Practical sermons. By the way, a lot of the stuff that I'm sharing with you, I'm sharing with you, it's personal to me. Personal to me. I've shared it with you before. I got to a crossroads. I got so tired of blowing it, then having to go and apologize to people and say, I'm really sorry, you know, and, and I'm the pastor, no how, you know? Yeah. And then I've got to apologize to my church members for me blowing it with them. There is such a thing as righteous anger to bring reform. There is such a thing as speaking the truth in love. There are those kinds of things. But very often I would do it out of a place of being threatened and insecure. And then I would speak to someone bringing correction who were obviously and very much in the wrong. But I would then blow it because I was worked up and insecure. I was not confident in my authority as the man of God of the house, as the shepherd of the house, to speak to the sheep and use the rod and the staff to bring correction. And so I would blow it. And I got tired of saying, what I said was true, but the way I said it was wrong. Because in the minds of the sheep, everything's wrong. It's all wrong. And it was. It was all wrong because my attitude. So I nullified the correction. And I got tired of it. And I went to the Holy Spirit and I said, how, how do I... I'm aware that there's two powers basically in my life if I want to put it in simple terms. There's the old John. There's the old, the old man and he's insecure and he was painfully shy and he was easily threatened and all of those kind of things. And he's, he's a servant to the fear of man. What can I... How do I tap into the, to the power of the Holy Spirit? So some of the things using different words is what I'm sharing with you this morning. I had to learn and teach myself how to tap into the Spirit so that I could then go and sit and talk with someone and uh, basically just say, Listen, I need to chat to you. It's a lot that I can compliment you for and commend you for, like Paul says. But in this area, I just need to talk about something that you're doing that doesn't glorify God, that's bringing destruction to yourself. Can I just share this with you? It will be painful, but it will be like the incision of a doctor to bring you healing, if you allow me. So come on, church. 
It's time for us to grow up. Revival is, is here at the door. Destiny beckons. Be a vessel prepared. Be a vessel prepared. Father, as we're bowing our heads, as we're praying this morning, much was said. We had a good laugh. But Father, I wanted to thank you. And it was such a spirit of honesty in the place this morning as we just began to acknowledge, yes, Lord, yes, Lord, that's me, that's me, that's me, that's me. Father, I pray the work that you set into the Spirit last Sunday, that you've reaffirmed this Sunday, would be carried out. Father, that there'd be such a spirit of sanctification let loose in this place, a spirit of wisdom and revelation so that we may know you better, that we may know all that you've made available, the riches of your glorious inheritance in the saints, your great, incomparably great power for us who believe, which is so resident, so powerful, that according to the measure of power that is in us and working already, you will do above what we can either ask, think, or imagine for your glory in Jesus' name. Jesus, we can ask for your assistance, the guidance of your spirit as we work out our salvation with fear and trembling. Lord, everyone here, there's not one of us sitting here this morning, otherwise we wouldn't be here, that doesn't have a desire to have the personality and the character of Jesus. So Father, we want to thank you that by your spirit, you will be committed to this process because you first said it in your word, now the spirit can move. And I thank you for the hovering incubus, incubation of the Holy Spirit to bring thorough change in our lives. In Jesus' name, we all agreed and said, Amen. So be it. Now may the Lord bless you, the Lord keep you, the Lord prosper you, the Lord be good to you, the Lord heal you, the Lord deliver you. The Lord cause you to progress. The Lord cause you to increase and to prosper and to profit in all things. May you prosper and be in health even as your soul prospereth. His face towards you. His grace upon you. And now that I've pronounced the blessing, Father, in the name of Jesus, put the name Jesus Christ upon your people and let them have peace in Jesus' name. Amen.